0: Well, I hope like you uh, drank in the really depths of uh, what we've sang this morning. You know, for a person who's not a follower of Christ, some of those words would seem odd, that we would sing with all of our hearts that if troubles shorten our days because we know what is ahead for you and I as believers, an unbeliever cannot understand that. In fact, for an unbeliever, I, you probably know this, for an unbeliever of Jesus, what happens in this world is the best that will ever happen in their life. For you and I as a follower of Christ, what happens in this life is the worst that will ever happen in you and I's life. Do you, you understand that? Whatever you and I are going through, it is the absolute worst we'll ever Because what you and I have ahead is honestly the scriptures over and over again reminds us that we are to look ahead. You know, you've probably heard the statement of you being so heavily minded, you're no earthly good. Well, that's really doesn't make sense because you and I's hope is ahead. We've been purchased by Christ and he has provided for you and I eternity out of this world that is undescribable. You and I can't even comprehend what he has. And yet, in the book of First Peter, he tells us constantly be thinking about what is ahead for you and I. Because Paul said what happens in this life, there was even a passage up there, compared to eternity is just a little bit of time. And the suffering that you and I go through is just not to even be compared to what will be ahead of you and I. I hope you and I hear those Words. Jonathan is so good to always, when he asks what we're going to be preaching, takes the passage and always puts words uh, to uh, what will be said today. Thank you for all that. I just want to recognize that uh, sometimes we forget there are still folks that are online and watching us, and they're at home. In fact, some folks are in other countries, and I know we don't do this all the time, but because he's one of our missionaries, and today is his birthday, I just want to say hello to Mark Dittmer, and happy birthday. And uh, today's his birthday there, and so happy birthday to you. I also know that there's a family in North Carolina, the Scott family, who was with us for several years, Monty, Soshi, Miranda, Liam... Uh, Scott, are watching us today, and so we welcome you I hope today will be a blessing to you. So I have a slide that is kind of a portrayal of what has happened not only years and years ago. It's an invisible slide. You can't see it. But anyway, it portrays... I'm just messing with you guys. Because they can mess you up or they can really help you out. So thank you, guys. I love you all. And uh, it just portrays what many uh, in past years... Have suffered as followers of Christ, it just depicts some of our brothers and sisters over the years were fed to lions. They were burned at the stake. They were tortured. They were mistreated all because of their faith. And what they wanted is they wanted them to uh, recant their faith because uh, they thought that if they could get a person to say, no, I recant, I'm not going to follow Jesus, it would be a great effect for those who were not followers of Christ. And so they would do this. I don't know if you realize they stopped doing this even though there are martyrs still today. Christians around the world are being murdered, tortured, thrown from their homes, imprisoned still to this day. But some of these acts probably happen in places we don't hear of, but these acts happened. The Colosseum shut down. They stopped doing it because more people were surrendering to Christ than ever at the burning of a believer at the stake because they would not recant, but what they would do is they would show through their life and through their witness, through many of them preaching until the flames consumed them, that they would preach about Christ, and they would talk about seeing Christ, and they were going, and instead of crying because of ultimate pain, they would be singing and rejoicing, and people would be kneeling at the burning of Christians instead of cheering at their demise, and so they stopped doing this, but The truth is that many have suffered for Christ. The truth is many are suffering for Christ today. Marty even mentioned last week in Afghanistan, Christians are going door to door, knowing that for most of them, they won't probably knock on another door because they'll take their life, but they are doing it. So my question to you and I, and to me more than any of us, how is it that you could have such courage to go through such things? So if you will take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The great thing about this year of reading through the Bible together, it's been really great because for those of us that have been doing it, you know, you can come up to each other, just talk about what you've been reading, what's been speaking to you. And so if you've been reading through the scriptures with us this year, you have already read through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't know much about 1 Corinthians 15, it is the chapter that talks more about the resurrection, not only of Jesus, but our resurrection than any other place in the Bible. It is the place to go. And, of course, we realize this, that the resurrection of Jesus is the pivotal point of our faith. Unless Jesus rose from the dead, you and I are altogether miserable because what we are believing is a lie. But we know that the resurrection of Jesus is a absolute hard objective truth. It is can be proven, it has happened. We, li- we serve a living Savior who's not in the grave, but who is alive and who is going to come back for you and I. And if he created the world in six days, just think what heaven's going to be like all this time he's been working on it. And that's what you and I have. To look forward to. In fact, I believe that this chapter will help you and I to realize how to have such boldness and have such confidence and to have such that whatever you and I are going through or will go through in the days ahead that will give us strength to continue on. To have confidence that whatever comes our way, what happens in this life, it's the worst that could ever happen. Because what you and I have ahead because of the resurrection, you and I have an incredible hope. In fact, Scripture says that I has not ever seen, and you have, I know, and I have seen some beautiful places in the world, but there's not one place your eye has ever seen that can compare to what heaven has for you and I. And you and I have heard some incredible things, but... What heaven has, what we'll hear there cannot be compared. But then it goes on to say that the mind has never conceived of such beauty. You and I can think up, I've dreamed up some big dreams. They far, far fall short of what heaven has in store for you and I. And so if you will, First Corinthians chapter 15 In fact, what I'm going to do is maybe what uh, churches back in Bible times did, they would get a letter because no one had the Scriptures, and so whoever was leading that little group of believers would read the letter to them, and then they would talk about it. And so what I want to do is just read through 1 Corinthians 15, comment a little bit, and then we're going to camp on the last verse for our remaining time. So in verse 1, it goes like this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That kind of sounds funny, doesn't it? Being saved. Uh, You and I uh, often talk about when we were saved or are you saved, but you realize that you have been saved that's called justification you are being saved right now that's called sanctification and one day you and i will be saved which is called what glorification it is not a one-time deal it is a all-time deal god is at continual work in you and i's lives and so that's why he says you're being saved if you hold fast to the word i preach to you unless you believed in vain verse 3 for i delivered to you as first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures And that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, at at the writing of this letter, most of those people were still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not I. It was not I, but it was the grace of God that was within me. Whether when it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the day? Because at that time there were folks, especially the scribes, Did not believe, Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. There are people today who do not believe in the resurrection. And so then, he says, verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if that's so, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, you and I are wasting our time this morning. In fact, every time you have a quiet time, you're wasting your time. Every time you memorize a Bible verse, you're wasting your time. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you and I, this is no waste of time. This is preparation. This is equipping. This is encouragement for you and I to continually be moving forward in this life. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, that's kind of an interesting word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, first fruits mean he is the first of all who will be raised. It's just a guarantee because of Jesus' resurrection, you and I, our bodily resurrection is a guarantee. Because you you realize, if you have a loved one in Christ, they are with the Lord. But one day, God will raise a new body. You and I are not going to be just a bunch of clump of spirits floating around on clouds in heaven. You and I will have new, it's a big deal today with all the movies, but new superhuman bodies to live in heaven and to be able to be in the presence of God for eternity. You and I, with this body, we, could, we wouldn't stand a chance. But you and I will be raised in new bodies. In fact, that's mostly what these folks were confused about. A lot of them were confused that, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead, but for most of them, that we would be raised a, a new body was a confusion to them, and that's why Paul's writing this. 21, For as by a man came death, by a man also the resurrection from the dead, for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is who puts all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. That God may be all in all. Verse 29 is one of the most difficult passage in the Bible to interpret. I know it didn't say that. You're, re- you're going like, that didn't read that. I, I'm just saying that. That's... Here's what it says. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? So there are many religions in our world today that believe that you can be baptized for a dead relative. Mormons, for the most part, believe that if they had a relative that was not in the ways of the Joseph Smith's teaching and the Book of Mormon and all that they believe, they believe that a relative who died, they can be baptized in their, for their sake and then they would have a place in heaven. So they've taken passages, misinterpreted them, misunderstood them, spun out a cultish teaching. So what does it mean? Otherwise, what does it mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? So you and I know that whenever someone goes into the baptistry, they are what? They're what? They're alive, yeah. And they're gonna get wet, but we know as believers that is, first of all, it's an act of obedience. As a follower of Christ, You and I are to publicly declare this. In the United States, it's not that big of a thing. I mean, the Bible makes it a big thing. But in the United States, it's not that big of a thing. In another country, you can say you have converted to Christianity all you want. But what they're looking for is will you publicly declare your faith by being baptized in front of your family and your friends of another belief. And for many people, baptism means instant death. In other countries, to be baptized usually in a river or a muddy pond or a lake means that either your parents or your family will literally kill you after your baptism. Because what you're doing is you're publicly declaring, I am a follower of Christ. It's not this water saves me, the blood of Jesus saves me, I am publicly declaring I'm a follower of his. That's what baptism is. And in other countries, if they do not literally kill you, they will have a funeral service for you right there, and they will never recognize you, they will never acknowledge you for the rest of your life. Now, probably your friends, people you work with, they'll kill you. But your family will not recognize you ever again because you died to them. You went out of their faith. You have recognized yourself as a follower of Jesus. You're unashamed of it. That's why you're baptized. So when he talks about baptism, he is talking about those who have publicly declared that they are. And when it says what? On on behalf of the dead He's talking about those who have preached the gospel. Many of them were martyred. In fact, I believe Paul could never get Stephen off his mind. You know that story. Before Paul became a follower of Christ, he would go around and he was killing Christians. And one day, all the people who stoned Stephen, by the way, the first deacon... Oh, I have to say, we're doing nominations of deacons and elders, and so be sure and fill one of those out, okay? First deacon, martyred. And they laid the clothes at Saul's feet, and he agreed with them that he should die. But when Stephen was being stoned to death, he didn't rattle off cursings or anything. What did he do? He looked into heaven, and he said, I see Jesus standing Isn't that interesting? I thought Jesus went to heaven and sat down on the throne. Why do you think he's standing? I think he's standing because in honor of one who would not bend the knee and recant, but who lived his life to the bitter end. And then, what did he say? God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it says, then he fell asleep. I think for Saul, he could never get that a man would die willingly and say such things to honor Jesus. He couldn't get it out of his mind. And so Paul, in his mind, would go, if the dead are not raised, why would anyone publicly say they are full of Jesus because this person witnessed or preached the gospel and they were killed for it, why would they do it unless they believed what that person said? In other words, why would they do such a thing? In fact, Paul goes on to say, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized and others, why are they professing publicly and openly that they are followers of Christ. Verse 30, Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? Another way to put it, why are we risking our lives all the time? If you've ever written or read any of Paul's all of his life demise, all that he went through, every day he says that he went was dying, why would he give such sacrifice? Why would a person in another country even today go around knowing that their life is at stake sharing the gospel with other people? Why would they do that if there was nothing up ahead? That was they knew that something greater was ahead. Why would they sing songs like we just sang? Why in the world would we do that? Why would we keep living for Christ? Why not just live for yourself and do your own thing and then, hey, you're just going to die and that's going to be it. But you and I believe something far greater, right? We believe this is not it. This is our mission field. This is not home. This is not home. So Paul would go on to say in verse 30, why then are we risking our lives Every day we're going through something. Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If you know that story, Paul said, Never before had I felt I was at the brink of death than at Ephesus. Ephesus and what was taking place there. They wanted to kill Paul with all of their heart, and he fought with them. If the dead are not raised, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, if there is no hope beyond this life, let us eat, drink. In other words, just live your life like you want, for tomorrow we're just gonna die and that'll be it. Do not be deceived. Good company. Ruins, bad morals. In other words, the false teachers of the day saying there's nothing more than this. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what, do you, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it will be, but a barren kernel, perhaps a wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same." But there is one kind uh, for all humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavens is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars and glories. For it is with the resurrection of the dead that is sown what is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a living spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And it is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we are born in the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, our bodies, which are now perishable, dishonored, weak, natural, they're going to be raised of bodies that are imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. We will be suited to live with God for eternity. It is un—maybe not the word believable, it's inconceivable because you and I live here right now. And we feel every moment of pain and disappointment and struggle. You and I can't even fathom that beyond this, it's unbelievable. But I want to say this it is God's choosing when you and I will go to heaven. Hear me, you don't get to choose. And for some people, aches and pains and sickness and things cause people and you and I and sin to long for heaven. But it's not you and I's choice when we get to go. When you and I die, it will be when God chooses our time to be with Him. Until then, you're on mission. Until you're dead you are on mission. Until you are dead, you and I are on mission. I could say that the rest of our time together this morning because it's absolutely true. Verse 50, "'I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise imperishable and we shall be changed.'" But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul has said in all of these 56 verses, you and I have a guarantee because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I will be raised from the dead, and we will be suited with a body that will have no more scars, sickness, weakness, frailty, any of that, and will be suited For heaven, only a believer, and I know this sounds odd, but only a believer could rejoice in the homegoing of a believer. My mother, when I was a baby, could not get a hold of her mom, my grandmother, on the phone. And so she walked about two blocks from the house I grew up in, and she walked in and she found her mother had taken her life. And it changed my mother for the rest of her earthly life. And so growing up, and I don't say this to shame of my mom, but just to the impact, my mom never put me to bed. My mom was in her room with her door shut, wailing herself to sleep. I never understood, never understood. I'd ask my dad, hey, is mom sick? And he would say this or that. And it wasn't until I was a teenager he told me the story. And yet it affected her her whole life. My mother was a chronic worrier, fearful, anxious. So, when she went to heaven, it was about 1.30 in the morning. And I was standing next to her. I had the privilege of watching her take her last breath. And hear me, it sounds morbid to some. But only a follower of Christ can praise God that she's free. I remember saying No more worrying. No more ache. No more pain. No more. And one day, my mother will get a new body, and it will not be in pain ever again. And Paul is saying this to you and I, wanting you and I to realize the promise that you and I have. Because the main part is the last verse of this chapter. Because he says in verse 58, therefore, you know why the therefore is there for? Therefore, because of this absolutely certainty, this promise, this thing that you and I hang our lives on. Isn't it true today? You're here, you believe in eternity, you're going through life trying to honor Jesus and everything you can because you know he's alive, he's changed your life, and that up ahead is something greater than you have ever experienced now. The truth is, it is. And you're like living your life today because of the confidence you have of what is to come. So he says, therefore, do these things. He says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what does he say? He says to be steadfast. In other words, to be settled In other words, as a follower of Christ, are you settled on the truths of Scripture, on the truths that Jesus really has risen from the dead? You and I will have a resurrected body. You and I will have eternity forever to be with him, and that at the same time that you and I know that we are to be steadfast at what he has called us to do in this short little life. What did James say about this life? It's just a puff of smoke. It's just a vapor. If you were up early enough this morning, you would see that there was a vapor. It was a beautiful morning and it was quickly gone. You and I's life is quickly in this life compared to eternity. He says, be steadfast. But here's an interesting word. It's the only time used in the Bible. It says to be immovable. Never to budge. In other words, let me read the scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by and waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We're no longer like that. We are immovable. And so if you will look at your worship guide for a moment, you know, steadfastness And being immovable reminds me of a word that I don't hear much anymore, and that is to have convictions. And so young people, I'm not just calling you out, but I really want you to hear this because your parents' faith is there for your example. It is there for your teaching. But hear me, your parents' faith is not your faith. You will not get to heaven on your parents' faith. You will not live your life for a follower of Jesus on your parents' faith. It's there. It is good. It's an example. But it must become yours. And so, in other words, the conviction of the scriptures of who Jesus is, it has to become yours to own it. In fact, there's a little definition of what a conviction A conviction is owning. It is the owning and the following of scriptural principles whatever the cost. A preference means you'll give and take and like if the circumstances are right, you'll do this or that. But a conviction is you will not budge because it's a conviction. It's like it doesn't matter, it's a conviction. To be a follower of Christ and to be a person who's been martyred, it was a conviction. If it was a preference, they'd say, hey, I don't want to go through this. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I recant. I don't follow Jesus. Let me go. I don't want to go through this. That's a preference. A conviction is, burn me at the stake. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Throw me in the fire. God can save me. If he doesn't, doesn't matter. I'm not going to bow anyway. A conviction. It's like settled I put in your, your notes, when I first became a believer, I was shown these ten convictions I, I, should, I probably should have. And I remember as a young man looking at these, not all of them at one time were my convictions. Today, I tell you, every one of these It's a conviction. In other words, I'll never move from it. In fact, I encourage all of us, especially our young people, our children, would you just look at them? I want to read them. Just read through them. Having these convictions. The Bible is the inspired Word of God and the final authority for my life. Did you kind of see that? For most of us, we'll say, yeah, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. But the conviction is it's the final authority authority for how i live it is it's that it's it that's it it's not situational ethics it's not however whoever i'm with it's not whatever age i'm at whatever it's that i believe the word of god and it's the final authority for my life too my purpose in life is to seek god with all my whole heart And to build my goals around his priorities. My body is the living temple of God and must not be defiled by the lust of the world. My church must teach the foundational truths of the Bible and reinforce my basic convictions. My children and grandchildren belong to God, and it is my responsibility to teach them scriptural principles, godly character, and basic convictions. My activities must never weaken the scriptural convictions of another Christian. My marriage is a lifelong commitment to God and to my spouse." My money is a trust from God and must be earned and managed according to scriptural principles. My words must be in harmony with God's word, especially when reproving or restoring a Christian brother. My affections must be set on things above, not on things in this world. And that's just a starter. That's just 10. There's way more. But here's probably what I want to camp on for just a moment. How does it become a conviction? How does something become a conviction? How does it move from the pages of Scripture and, like, for some can just take it, leave it, whatever, but, like, it really becomes mine? It really becomes yours. I, I want to give you two things, and then I want to give you an illustration. Here's how I believe a conviction takes root You must personally choose to obey it. That sounds real simple, doesn't it? But you, every one of us in this room, you must personally choose to obey it. Not your parents, not whoever is in authority over you, not because your wife or your husband. It's you have chosen to obey it. Two, you must step out to obey it When it terrifies you. So for years, I used to take people um, rock climbing and, uh, but rappelling was always my, the funnest. Um, Like a hundred foot cliff, jump off with a rope, just like a free fall until a few feet off the ground and slow yourself down. Isn't that some fun? And, uh, but it, it was just, it was great, but it was a great teaching opportunity. I don't know if you've ever done it. It is really fun. In fact, we'll probably have a church-wide deal one of these days. Eric Schrock's having like, uh, no, anyway, just messing with you, Eric. We won't do that. But the deal is, repelling really can be fun, but it is probably the most terrifying thing you'll ever do in your life. Is that an oxymoron or what? Fun uh, and terrifying. But anyway. So, you know what you do with uh, rappelling? You get a really nice, good rope. And children, if you remember this rope, Mr. Billy rappelled from up there. You remember that? You're looking up there seeing if Mr. Billy's up there. He's not. But anyway, rappelling, you have to have a really good rope. But then you have to anchor it to something you know that's not going to give way. So, you want to find, like you're up on a cliff, you want to find... The one thing that you know will not give away. And so over the years, it has been kind of difficult at times. I've taken people to different mountain ranges, and uh, you'd find different things to hook it to. And so my whole deal over the years was to find the thing that I knew would never, ever give way, and I would hook that rope to it. Well, that's the first thing. You want to make sure it is anchored to something that is never going to give way. And so, as the guy who's trying to teach young people to do it, you're convincing them that that will never give way. And then, you're hooking them up to the rope, and you're talking to them about, you can trust this rope, you can trust this. And there was always a person below who was on belay. And then, if you've ever done it, you know this to be true. If you haven't, let me just tell you, once you back off the cliff to the point of no return, doesn't that sound like a great, fun thing to do? Hey, you're at the point of no return now, and so you are terrified, but you have placed your trust in what it's anchored to into the rope, and you go down, And for the most part, and by the way, girls, over the years, I've never had a girl in any youth group never not do it. But I've had a bunch of guys get up to the top, look over and go, I'm good, I'm good, I'll just go down there and watch. Never a girl, every girl that would come up, they'd get on and go down it, you know, crying, screaming, whatever, but they would do it. So do you get it? You must choose. You must choose. It's terrifying. But honestly, once you've done it before, you're like, I trust this. I trust what God says. It terrified me. I chose to obey it. It might be that you share your faith and you're terrified. It might be that you obey your work, but it terrifies you because you know it's going to go, it's biblical, but it goes against what your company works for, or their standards or whatever. It goes against, and yet you choose to obey it. It terrifies you. That is when it will become a conviction. And so young people, in fact, every person in here, if there is something you're unsure of, I would just encourage you, do you believe the Scriptures? Be steadfast and movable. Is it a conviction that, yes, I believe this and do it? Because I want you to look at the rest of the verse because then it is in the middle. I want to see it at the end of the verse first because... Here you got this incredible promise of resurrection. Then at the end of the verse, it says this, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Did you see that the very end of that verse? It is a convincing. You are convinced to the bone that when you are serving the Lord, your toil, now you realize some people's toil is martyrdom. Some people's toil is to stand up for conviction at their school or at their work. This is what God says, and I cannot and I will not budge on it. That toil. The work that you do in your home as a godly parent. The work that you do in your marriage as a godly marriage. The work that you do in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, it's not empty. It's not a waste of time. It's not going to come to anything. In other words, people who were dying at the stake wanted to realize something. Is what I'm doing going to matter? Yes. What you're doing as a follower of Christ, does it matter if it's done for the Lord? What does he say? It is not in vain. And so, where does he go from that? Because the middle part of the verse is kind of the whole thing of it because it says this, if you're convinced of the resurrection and you're steadfast and immovable in that, And if you realize that what you do for the Lord is never in vain, it's never empty. You work with kids and you're wondering, will they ever get it? Am I just wasting my life? Some of you, you have children that have needs that you're having to give your whole life to and you're wondering, is it worth it? If it's in the Lord, guess what? It's not empty. It's not in vain. In fact, Jesus says in Revelation that he has a reward waiting for you. And just think about it. A reward on top of getting to live with him for eternity in heaven. He says this, then always be abounding in the work of the Lord, overflowing, exceeding, Coasting, relaxing, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why would you and I excel? Why would you and I, as we get older, why would we want to do more? Why would we want to live to the end of our life, given everything we have for him? Why? Because we know the resurrection body's coming. And we know that everything we do in the Lord is to no avail. It matters in God's sight. I don't know if you've ever heard of missionary John Patton. John Patton was a missionary that went to some islands that are off of Australia, kind of between Australia and New Zealand. There's about 80 different little islands there. In the 1600s, Captain James Cook discovered these islands, and he brought back news that, hey, a new discovery had been found. And the London Missionary Society sent two men, John Williams and James Harris, to go and kind of look and see uh, if the gospel needed to be there and so forth, uh, because these were undiscovered islands. They landed on the island on November 20th, 1836, and within moments they were killed and eaten by the cannibals that lived on these 80 islands. So you can imagine when word came back, uh, all these 80 islands are inhabited by cannibals. For many years, no one went back. No one would go back. John Patton, he grew up in his home, had such an urge to go and be used of God and felt a call on his life that he told his church he was willing to go. And here's a quote. An elder in his church named Mr. Dixon exploded and said, "'The cannibals, you'll be eaten.'" John Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prosperity prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms." I confess to you that if you can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will be risen as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Mr. Dixon had nothing more to say, and John Patton went. John and his wife went. A year after they landed on the island, his wife and newborn son died. John Patton did not go home. He stayed. Later, he was married. Years later, they had another child. That child died. They served together for 41 years until Margaret died. When John was 81 years old. John Patton was steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because he knew his labor was not in vain. There's a little quote in your notes if you'd look at it. You've probably heard this before, but the truth just needs to continually ring. And in fact, if you and I's life is going to continue to always Advance, always be abounding, always be exceeding in the work of the Lord. This would be maybe something you and I would always say to ourselves again in evaluating what, is go- what our life is, what we're doing now. Because the quote says this Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's the only thing that will last. What you're doing, if you're being obedient to Christ, what you are doing is not in vain. I, I just encourage you. In fact, if you, if you know the verse, verse 58, would you say it with me? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord, it is not in vain. Father, we come to you, your children, your people, your servants, just being reminded once again of the glories and the beauty of your word that you've given to us you have not left us without assurance you've not left us uninformed you have not only given us your word but your holy spirit that reminds us daily of your word is true and i am always with you and your toil and the lord is not in vain and i pray for my brothers and sisters i pray for myself that, Lord, we would have such a confidence and conviction of your word, of your resurrection, of your promise of our resurrected bodies, of the promise that our work done for you and in your way is not in vain, that we would continually and always be advancing and abounding in your work. What promises you and I have? I would pray for my brothers and sisters who are weary. Maybe they're weary in their homes because of the toil they have to do or in their jobs, the toil they have to do. I would pray for brothers and sisters who have illnesses that are wearing them down and uncertainties. And for many, they have relatives they've been praying for family, been praying for, for years now that they would turn to you and they are growing weary. In fact, there are people in this room, all of us somewhere could point out we're weary there. Pray today your promises would renew our steadfastness, our immovability, Our convictions that your word and you are true, and we can count on it. Our life is tethered to the most secure thing there is, and that is you. If it was left up to us to hang on to you, we would have let go a long time ago. But the truth is, it is you that hangs on to us, it is your keeping. Jude at the end said, he is able to keep us. I pray today we would have that conviction deep in our soul when we walk out these doors, go and have to face another week in a dark world. I pray that we would have the confidence in the midst of being scared to death for some of us in certain situations. That we would remember that you're with us and you never leave us. And our toil is never, ever, in vain, done for you. As he sings in your powerful name. Amen.